Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining. Hope your weekend is going well. The big news of this week was the drone attack on the Kremlin, which Moscow says came from Ukraine and was done with the blessing of the U.S. Uh, in the U.S., there was a rush of analysts, so-called experts, who went on corporate news to declare that this was really actually a Kremlin false flag. So here's one example. This is uh, retired General Jack Keane on Fox News. Well, we've looked at this at the Institute for the Study of War, and we've concluded that Russia's conducting a false flag operation here. For our audience, that means that they created this incident themselves. And, and why do we come to that conclusion? I mean, it doesn't fit Ukraine's pattern of behavior at, at all. First of all, there's little or no damage, and Ukraine would be absolutely seeking damage. Number two, I mean, hitting the top of the Senate dome appears to be well-framed for filming, which it clearly was. As a- All right, so that's, I mean, look, both of his reasons there make no sense. Um, when you launch an attack, you're not always sure of what the damage will be. But certainly, attacking the Kremlin is a pretty high-value target. And if you can do anything there, if you can even just show you can fly a drone there, that's a sign of Kremlin weakness. And so the fact that there wasn't a lot of damage, to me, <laughs> uh, doesn't necessarily... Uh, discount the possibility that it was Ukraine or have anything really to do with identifying the suspect because, again, you can't always control what, what the damage of your attack will, uh, be. And, um, and then the second one about that this was framed for filming. Well, there are cameras everywhere around the Kremlin, in fact, and this, this, uh, one he was talking about came after another drone was intercepted earlier. So, uh, they probably, um, had cameras even more uh, at the ready than they would otherwise. So it, it, that just doesn't make sense. And regardless, it's just so funny to me that when, you know, uh, U.S. allies are accused of false flags, like in Syria, that's so easily dismissed as a conspiracy theory. This time, everybody was just rushing to declare that this was a false flag. Here is also uh, Robert O'Brien. He's Trump's former national security advisor on it Fox News. It is a a Russian false flag operation. And keep in mind that that's for a couple of reasons. One, the Russians just launched a massive drone attack on civilians in Ukraine, and they've been roundly criticized for it. And I think this is maybe their way of trying to say, oh, no, the Ukrainians did this to us as well. Number two, it's inconsistent with the way the Ukraine has fought the war so far. I mean, Ukraine could engage in guerrilla activity in Moscow and other major uh, uh, Russian cities. It has not done so. Uh, it's had limited attacks in the Russian Federation, just limited to power stations on the border, uh, which, again, they deny. So this is inconsistent with how Ukraine has fought the war. And number three, if they're... Also not true. Uh, Ukraine's launched strikes deep into Russia, including a military air base that houses uh, nuclear-capable bombers. So that's just... Robert O'Brien, for a former national security advisor, he's pretty uninformed about how this war has uh, gone. And of course, there have been many reports that uh, Ukraine wanted to strike deeper into Russia earlier this year, but they were stopped. And um, the Washington Post reported, and this is based on Pentagon leaks, that Ukraine had agreed to uh, postpone uh, its strikes deep inside Russia, but not abandon them completely at the request of the US. So was this attack on the Kremlin one of those that, that, that were postponed? I think quite possibly. And you have Ukraine's military intelligence chief repeatedly vowing to launch strikes deep inside Russia. And I wrote about this week, uh, 
Uh, his name is Carrillo Budinov. And in January, he told ABC News that he expects deeper and deeper strikes inside Russia. And he was, and then, uh, just recently he was asked by PBS, if Ukraine is hindered by the U.S. insistence that U.S. weapons not be used to attack inside Russia. And he replied, absolutely not. And we do not need weapons from the Americans or anyone else to get to the Russians. We have enough Ukrainian means and weapons to do this. So he's pretty, he's made it pretty explicit what his plans are. And so the rush to call this a false flag, I find very odd. And, um, Look, do I think Ukraine has the right to strike inside Russia? I, I do. They're being invaded. They have the right to hit uh, their invader inside their own country, of course. But is it prudent? Is it smart? And should the U.S. be, rather than encouraging this, should the U.S. be pushing for, for diplomacy? Uh, that, to me, is the question that I have not seen being posed. And, in fact, what I saw from the White House was basically a green light for operations like this. So this is Antony Blinken being questioned by... David Ignatius of the Washington Post. If Ukraine decided on its own to strike back in Russian territory, the United States would not criticize them. Again, these are decisions for Ukraine to make about how it's going to defend itself, how it's going to get uh, its territory back, how it's going to restore its territorial integrity uh, and its sovereignty. So that's basically a green light for Blinken because he says these are decisions for Ukraine to make. But yes, the U.S. is keeping Ukraine in the fight. Everyone knows that. And so the U.S. has a huge say in what Ukraine could do. And rather than say, listen, don't strike the Kremlin because let's say you kill Putin, um, that might spark World War III. They're saying, you do what you want. And uh, that is dangerous. And it's all the more dangerous because now we're getting headlines like this from, from the Washington Post. Senior Ukrainian officials fear counterattack may not live up to the hype. Uh, so they're talking about Ukraine's, uh, pending counteroffensive. And they're saying that for all the hype we've gotten about how Ukraine is going to retake territory, now, uh, Ukrainians are saying, you know what? All these expectations you're putting on us are not going to live up to the hype. And it's a funny way to put it, hype, because, you know, this is supposed to be an existential war for Ukraine's survival. And so framing that battle as not living up to the hype, it's sort of an acknowledgement that really this is not about Ukraine's survival. This is about Basically, uh, serving U.S. goals, the hype that have been, that has been, uh, generated around its counteroffensive, uh, and that it's, it's on Ukraine to live up or not to hype that proxy warriors have generated. It's just an odd way to put it. And what both this article and another article in the New York Times makes clear that the Times article is called, uh, as Putin bides his time, Ukraine faces a ticking clock. Ukraine is feeling short-term pressure from its Western backers for success in a looming counteroffensive. Putin, it seems to be operating on a longer timeline. And what this article makes clear is that, um, that this, it says, quote, if the Ukrainians fall short of expectations, they risk an erosion of Western support. So, I mean, I thought we were told that we, we, we will, hey, that we will help Ukraine for as long as it takes. That's, that's Biden's line. We'll help for as long as it takes because we're helping them defend themselves. Now what these articles are making clear is that really Western support it's contingent on Ukraine showing success. So this is not about helping Ukraine defend itself. This is about Ukraine showing us that it can be effective in bleeding Russia, which is the whole goal of this proxy war. I just find that very revealing. Like if you're in this to help a country defend itself uh, from extinction, then you'll be there to help them 
you know, no matter what, no matter whether they show success or not. And if they don't show success, that would seemingly obligate you all the more to help them even more. But what these articles are making clear is that if Ukraine can't perform, then Western support will go away. And so that raises the question, well, uh, if your support for Ukraine is contingent on, on its success, why not just call for negotiations, call, call for negotiations now so that no more people have to sacrifice themselves just to show success? It doesn't make sense to me and it's, it's very revealing. Um, meanwhile, moving on to a story I just find unbelievable, even though it's so obvious by now. Uh, Mike Morrell, the former deputy director of the CIA who uh, admitted to, uh, spreading the lie that the Hunter Biden laptop came from Russia after he got a call from Anthony Blinken. Uh, this week it came out that he did so because he wanted to give Biden a quote talking point at the debate uh, between him and Trump in October 2020. So basically, this is, this is an admission from Morrell that that letter was done not just to help Biden win the election, but to give him a talking point. So basically to give him propaganda. So essentially, this is exactly what Michael Morrell was accusing Russia of. This is spreading propaganda in the interests of helping a candidate win the election. And so this has all come out. This is documented. This is his own testimony. But yet the media has just yawned at all this. They, they barely acknowledged it because, of course, media spread the lie that this laptop really could have come from Russia. And meanwhile, one other thing I want to note is a uh, headline from Axios. It's, it says, good riddance, GOP lawmakers private glee at Tucker Carlson's firing. And what Axios reports is that there are a number of Republican lawmakers who are thrilled he's gone because he was criticizing the Ukraine proxy war. It just seems very, very clear to me now that this was the reason why Tucker Carlson was fired. So for all my disagreements with him, for all the things he said that I really don't like, it's just a fact that on cable news, he was uh, consistently calling out the proxy war, being, criti- being critical of it. And it's so clear to me now that this was the main factor in his firing. And there have been attempts by Fox News to leak text messages and, uh, and videos to make it seem as if that was the reason. But those don't even make any sense uh, because, for example, they, 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 you know, there's, it's been said they had to fire him because they didn't want to go through a situation where on the witness stand in the Dominion lawsuit, his text messages would come up. But the problem is Fox settled the Dominion lawsuit before they fired Tucker Carlson. So that issue was moot. So even their explanations don't even make sense. And it's pretty clear to me, now that we know from Semaphore, another outlet, that the Murdochs spoke to Zelensky just weeks before uh, Tucker Carlson was fired, it seems pretty clear to me that that was the factor. And now you have all these Republicans coming out and openly celebrating his firing. So um, that to me just shows how really our media is controlled and it's not just about profit. It's really about narrative management. So that even, even losing someone like him might not be good for Fox's bottom line, but it does, uh, you know, bring them back fully in line with the national security state and people who want to promote the national security state like the Murdochs do. And that's what I suspect was the main factor in Carlson's firing. I, of course, don't know for sure, but that's what I suspect. And given that so many people who are uh, tied to the proxy war are thrilled that he's gone. I think that's a very, very strong clip. Okay. Uh, let's take some calls. 
Okay, I don't think the sound's very good. Is it okay if I hang up and ring back? Uh, you sound fine to me. Okay, I, okay, I can hear that. Okay. Yeah, I was just thinking that the, um, the uh, attack on the Kremlin um, is quite interesting because I was reading, um, you know, the blog Moon of Alabama, and he was saying he thinks the game's up for Zelensky because I think, you know, he believes it was an assassination attempt on Putin. And he noted Zelensky was out of the country. He was in, I think, Finland or the Netherlands or something. And he seems to think when Zelensky comes back to Ukraine, you know, he might be a target, you know, for Russia because, you know, it's well known that uh, Putin, I think it was Naftali Ben. Jeff, I lost you there. I can't hear you, so I'm going to move on to the next caller. Go ahead, Sam. Hey, Aaron, can you hear me all right? Yeah. Great. Hope you're enjoying your Sunday. Um, I just want to shift the conversation. Formations across Uh, the Donbass. Oh, no. Okay. This is is where the app is being glitched. Just one second. I'm going to fix this. I will find Jeff. Okay, I think that's fixed. Um, go ahead, Sam. And, and Jeff, if you hear this, call back in. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to shift the conversation for a quick minute. Um, I have been smiling ear to ear uh, after hearing about Vice News going bankrupt because, uh, you know, back when they started, they were actually pretty good. I think I was telling you this like this is a long a while back, but you know, early on in the uh, the conflict in Syria, 2011 or so. They were doing good reporting. Like they were one of the people who started raising the flag about ISIS. He's like, uh, you know, I remember one of the segments they were pointing out, like, there's this group forming. I think this might be a problem here. And uh, they actually did a decent reporting early on when they were showing some of these groups. I think they went to like an Israeli hospital and they were talking with some of these supposed, you know, rebel forces. And they were asking them like, hey, who put you here? Was it uh you know, Al Qaeda or, you know, was it the government? They were like, No, 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 Al Qaeda are our brothers. And I was like, yeah, that seems like that's kind of important. But then their narrative switches in 2013 to now all these people are, are just good rebels. And uh, I think that woman you were showing, I forget her name. She's uh, Ramos's daughter. I don't know her name. Yeah, I don't know her name either. But so um, this week on the Jimmy Dore show, I did like a recap of some of Vice News's most neocon moments. And I agree with you. They they started out um, – Actually, being uh, somewhat anti-establishment on on you know, or at least uh, somewhat factual on, on stories yeah. like Syria, but then at a certain point, I agree with you, they went full neocon. I mean, she did a segment. I think it was a year ago. She goes to Idlib, and I'll never forget it. She gets in a car with like two other or three other uh, three. Sorry, gets in a car with three uh, HTS members, and she's driving around, and she goes, "Oh, this is dangerous. We could be." We could be attacked by the Russians or the Syrian. I'm like, you're in a car with three HTS members. I, I'm, I'm failing to understand how you think that won't happen. And the whole time, nobody, she never questions like what their views are or anything like this. And I'm going, this is why people kind of tune out of Vice News is because you've just kind of drank the Kool-Aid and, and accepted everything that the U.S. has said. So I've been very happy about that, that they're going yeah. under. And uh Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, you know, I um, 
I can't express glee at that because it's, you know there's a lot of people losing their jobs. But I, I will say that um, I do agree. It's like if, if you're going to be if you're going to brand yourself as being counter establishment and edgy, it's just like what's the point if you're just going to be basically the establishment but just with like you know edgier music and camera techniques. That's really all Vice became on, on so many of these issues. I don't want to say on, on everything because maybe they were good on some stuff that I missed. But and I've done some work for them before, you know. And I, you know, for me it was a good experience. But what I was doing wasn't really political. Um, no, I mean, I so, was just, yeah, I agree with you on that thing. But I mean, they did a video last year about like they were talking about like the pharmaceutical problem. Yeah. And the video begins with, this video was sponsored by Pfizer. I mean, the comments were brutal. <laughs> like, That's so funny. Yeah, you can look yeah. it up and find it. Uh, but it started off with, like, this thing is sponsored by Pfizer or one of the companies. And everyone in the comments going, yeah, I, it's very hard for me to take anything you say to be, it could be the most factual thing. But if you're literally starting with, yeah. this is sponsored by X Pharmaceutical, there's no point. That is so, that is so funny. That is so funny. Yeah. yeah. If I find it, I'll like I'll put in the I'll, I'll message it to you. Yeah. But, uh, and you know the uh, the Idlib thing. Like I remember, there was a vice reporter who went to Idlib, which is the province of Syria occupied by Al Qaeda. And I remember her saying, "Yeah, like we coordinated with HTS and we got their permission. We coordinated with them. We worked yeah. with them." And uh, so HTS is is Al Qaeda, right? And uh, it just it didn't. You're working with Al Qaeda. And you're trying to present them as being like the rebels, like the the like noble rebels, and it just it didn't occur to any of these people that like maybe there's something because they've so internalized U.S. propaganda is who's fighting the government we're trying to overthrow that they, they just must be good, even if they happen to be Al Qaeda. And I, you know, like when I went to Syria, I had government-held areas, which is where most Syrians live. I went to Damascus, like. You know, people, you know, like like pro Jody War people were attacking me for like going going there and like you know getting with the government in terms of like getting a visa. Is if that was like is if I had like so I was working with like uh, like the devil. But someone someone goes and coordinates visit somewhere for a PR opportunity uh, for Al Qaeda. It's yeah, I, I thought it was very revealing. And uh, you know, and speaking of Syria, Syria I think just got readmitted to the Arab League. Uh, yeah, today, they did. Right? They so, they've had meetings with them. They've yeah. had uh, members from Iraq, Jordan, and so on. And uh, now again, I'm still wondering. I mean, I'm, I'm, this is great. The UAE has been uh, sending lots of aid, uh, you know, from the earthquake. All good, but I'm still watching to see what's going to happen with uh, with Idlib. I mean, because the U.S. will have to eventually leave Syria. They're just it's just not feasible to stay there indefinitely. But what yeah. happens to that? Because Turkey doesn't want them back. So what what do you do with the uh, what you know the CIA calls a disposable problem? That's a great question. Um, anyway, I'm time at the queue, so enjoy your Sunday, and I'll talk to you next week. Okay. Thanks, Sam. Hello, Steve. Hello, Aaron. Steve, hi there. Hi, hi, Aaron. Yeah, just on the Syria point, um, you're right. Uh, they got let back in. <laughs> Oh, uh, Anthony Blinken said they're bad boys and you shouldn't let them back in. Yeah. But they, but Syria got let back in. There's two teams now in the world. There's Team U.S. Hegemony and there's Team BRICS. Uh, started by Lula, by the way, in like 19, uh, 19, 
what century is it? 2011 or something like that. Anyway, um, and, and that's the way the world is going right now. It, it's going into two teams. And I know which team I'm for. Uh, anyway, um, I wanted to talk about this offensive because I think this is the big turning point in the Syria war. Um, Brian Belenik and a lot of the and uh, Defense Politics Asia, a lot of the people who are doing a really good job of at, objectively analyzing what's going on. Yeah. Um, so the Russians have the Russians have evacuated uh, the Zaporozhye re- region, uh-huh. the entire region. They've taken all the civilians out. Uh-huh. So they obviously know that's where the attack is going to be, and. Um, I think, well, we're not told, Americans don't understand how the war is being fought because the American Ukrainian side just thinks about territory. Oh, look, we made a territorial game. We're winning. Right. But the, the Russian side wants to demilitarize Ukraine. Right. Which means they want to kill as many Ukrainian soldiers as they possibly can. And they're, they're winning <laughs> because they're killing a lot of Ukrainian soldiers. It's again, it's not being reported by, you know, the corporate news. Yeah. But, uh, you know, Max, and you, you guys know what I'm talking about. Sure. So, um, so the Russians are going to give up some territory. Yeah. And they're going to kill all these Ukrainian soldiers. And, okay. but it's going to be reported in the West as a victory. So, I mean, if, just FYI, people. Uh, that's what's going to happen. And then we'll see if NATO, after, after it's found out to be a loss, we'll see if, if, uh, if the neocons are ready to give up. But I don't know. What do you think, Aaron? Uh, are they going to go all the way to World War III or are they going to give up at some point? Great question. <laughs> I mean, no, isn't that, isn't that yeah, the, like the yeah. existential question of humanity yeah. right now? The yeah. thing is, like, you know, on the positive side, you know, I, I, it's totally plausible to me that there are people like Victoria Newland and Jake Sullivan and Blinken who, they, they're fine with World War III, maybe. But I don't think the Pentagon wants to fight World War III. I don't know. They I don't. don't. The Pentagon don't. doesn't want to fight a real land war. No. It really, no. it hasn't since Vietnam and it got its ass kicked in Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah. Hello. Oops, sorry. Sorry about that. Um, there no, was no. Um, sorry. I, every time, a, every I, every time a car goes by, my cell goes out. Yeah. Um, um, so, so yeah. No. So, so I was just saying they got their ass kicked in Vietnam. The, yeah. The Pentagon. The Pentagon knows the U- United States of America can't fight a land war. Yeah. I would just. I would just. But I was saying. So. Yeah. So, so the issue for me is not like. Yeah. I'm not worried about the outbreak of like a like a ground war, but things. Oh like, yeah. Things like. Um, it was reported recently in the Pentagon leaks that you know a Russian a Russian plane almost shot down a manned British plane, mm-hmm. and the only reason it didn't is because the rocket like like the British like like the Russian weapon malfunctioned, because basically like, like the Russian pilot misheard instructions from his ground crew, and so he thought he had permission to fire, but he didn't. He did fire, and only because the weapon malfunctioned did he not shoot down a plane full of British soldiers like over the Black Sea or something. And so things like that, you know, that that could trigger, uh, you know, some, yes. some sort of exchange and something like that could even trigger a nuclear exchange. That, to me, is what worries me. Not, like well, a, not, yeah. not a ground war, but but something like that. 
I, I, you're right. No, no, no. They wouldn't tr- even try a ground war because they can't move the troops over fast enough. Yeah. No, you're, you're right. It's, it's the nuclear threat that's the biggest threat. The thing is, though, you're right about the Pentagon. Remember when they, when the Russian drone kind of peed, uh, the Russian SU-27 peed on the drone and made yeah, it sure. come back? <laughs> um, uh, guess what? They don't fly drones that close anymore. Hmm. See, I think, I think the Pentagon is skittish. You know, they want to they want to retire, you know, and, and work for uh, sure. General Dynamics. Yeah, sure. They don't want to die in a bunker. No, <laughs> no. Now, about, no. maybe maybe Newland wants to. <laughs> maybe someone can arrange that. I don't know. But I don't think the generals want to. Anyway, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. OK. Hey there, uh, pseudonymous one thousand. Hello. Hi. Um, Hi there. Uh, can you hear me all right? Yep. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to talk about about Ukraine and also about uh, Bobby Kennedy Jr. Um, I, I actually sort of. Uh, the last time I spoke with you, I think it was just last week, I sort of, um, I was talking about canvassing for RFK and finding quite a positive response, generally speaking, from the people I was speaking with in the, on the ground um, across across demographics, uh, although I would say more with minorities and elites than with, sorry, more with minorities and working class people than with elites and, and only like uh, regime apparatchiks. Those are the people who are most opposed to his candidacy, of course. Um, he, he had Douglas McGregor on his podcast yesterday. I thought it was really an interesting discussion. One of the, I think, issues that McGregor mentioned was how uh, the embrace of, you know, so-called woke ideology. In certain respects, I'm sympathetic to some of the things that gets thrown in with woke ideology. Like, um, I, uh, I don't study the law, um, but uh, in terms of critical race theory, I'm very... Uh, you know, um, interested in a lot of uh, scholars in the humanities who are, I think, illuminating the ways in which racial classifications have sort of, you know, been mobilized in systems of domination historically in the, the history of the United States and the West. Um, more broadly, I mean, I, I think this is a, a global issue of sort of group differentiation and, and hierarchy that, you know, needs to be theorized on. Uh, along the most universal lines possible. Sorry, I'm kind of, that's a bit of a tangent, but um, the, I'll try to steer it back to Ukraine. Um, anyway, um, uh, um, McGregor was talking about how the Pentagon's embrace of woke ideology will tend to undermine uh, the cohesiveness that's essential to military formations. I mean, military formations are based around drill and command hierarchies. Um, that are meant to be, you know, a kind of frictionless machinery as, as, as best as possible in terms of uh, putting into, in terms of implementing the um, commands uh, from uh, the commanders. Um, and um, when you introduce divisive social issues that, that the rank and file of the military, the soldiers um, who are actually filling the ranks, that they're uncomfortable with and that causes, you know, controversy and, and um, division within the ranks, 
that can really undermine the effectiveness of a fighting force. Um, so I think these are complicated issues. Also, like, you know, trans and sports, I think you need to consider the difference between the particular and the general. Um, so in general, you know, it can be full of trans people um, and, you know, certainly uh, demonize them or suggest that their identity is a front to uh, objective truth or something like that. Tulsi Gabbard says stuff like this. I find it very disappointing as a former supporter of hers. Um, but, uh, like, um, with the sports issue, you know, I mean, like, particular domain that has particular um, problems associated with it in terms of having biological men competing against biological women. Um, and likewise, in the military, I mean, like, um, with trans issues or with critical race theory being something that you're teaching to uh, cadets and, um, you know, just uh, enlisted men and women. I mean, that's a kind of uh, indoctrination that's entirely unnecessary to military functionality and actually it's detrimental to it. So it's, uh, I think, pretty unwise. Um, yeah, uh, RFK, uh, RFK didn't really comment on that. It was, it was McGregor who was making this point, but um, last week when I spoke to you, I, I had suggested that my reason for supporting RFK was because I want to sort of restore genuine freedom in our national culture. And I think he would do that. And for me personally, that's very, as someone who's basically been um, uh, not, ne not necessarily canceled, but, but boxed in in a way um, where it's difficult for me to conceive of a successful you know, professional career for myself despite feeling like I'm like, I have a lot to contribute and, you know, I, I could, that I could do um, some, some good for our, for our country. But um, uh, it, that's my own, that's my own issue. And the much more important thing and what really convinced me to support RFK was the way he approached the Ukraine issue. Um, that was what decided me um, as a, as a supporter of him. And um, I, I, I gave a misleading impression in terms of, um, emphasizing this thing that's sort of closer to my own heart in terms of my own individual anxiety last week, uh, rather than uh, emphasizing the more universal and overriding concern, which is the threat of nuclear war. Um, and I just wanted to uh, correct correct that point. And um, also, uh, yeah, this, uh, I didn't really have uh, planned remarks to, to discuss with you today, but I just wanted to uh, uh, call in and um, see where the spirit led me. Okay, well, fair. Well, thanks for saying all that. And uh, yeah, I've, I've been increasingly impressed with what I hear Bobby Kennedy Jr. say. He, he t this week he talked about pardoning Assange, and he talked about the, the dangers of this proxy war. And he talked about, I mean, he said some things that actually I, I, I think were inaccurate. He said that Ukraine was going to put uh, Aegis rocket launchers, the U.S. was going to put Aegis rocket launchers, or had already put them inside Ukraine. And that's not true. Like, they haven't. But I'd rather someone get it wrong if it's, in this, if it's for the sake of being overly cautious and trying to prevent nuclear war, you know, uh, rather than being right in promoting, you know, if you're going to have a position that promotes nuclear war. So I think it's great he's so concerned about the dangers of this proxy war, even if he sometimes gets some of the facts wrong. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's great. He's in there and already the poll, like that one poll showed he had 19%. That's a really positive sign. But of course, how is Biden responding? Well, he's responding by saying they won't have any debates at all. So, um, 
you know. Right, uh, right. I but, think uh, I, I would but, encourage uh, everyone, yeah. could I just make one last point? I would encourage yeah, everyone to get to get canvassing right now, just in their community, because the only way we're going to be able to overcome what I think you can fairly describe as a kind of regime of corporatist totalitarianism at this point, the only way that's going to be defeated is if the manifest popular will for change is entirely undeniable. So we need to make yeah. contact in the real world, speak to each other, persuade each other on rational grounds that are compelling. And then we need to build visibility around that in a way that makes any deniability entirely implausible on the part of our governing elites. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, Bob. Hey, Aaron. How are you? Can you hear me? Hi there. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful. Um, I've uh, uh, been a, a great admirer of your work for a great, a great long time, and I just, you know, wanted to let you know that. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask because I guess to me it is this uh, uh, whether it's um, I, I, I guess I could see either scenario when it comes to this uh, uh, to this this. Kremlin droning, and um, I just kind of wanted to ask, uh, like, like, uh, do you, uh, do you, uh, I, I, I'm just, I'm not a hundred percent sold that 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 this isn't necessarily a false flag, because I yeah. can totally see that. I could right. totally see Russia doing that, and I mean, I'm not a not. I'm not like you know MSNBC kind of guy. I'm just yeah. sort of the the, the uh, I, I you know I, I like to ask questions and I like to think. And I um, I guess in your mind because um, I've been kind of disconnected uh, recently. I've been having a lot of a lot of uh, issues over here and everything. But I guess in your mind, I I, uh, I guess my question is, what scenario do you think is more likely? Um, do you, uh, uh, I mean, just because MSNBC says it doesn't necessarily mean it's untrue. That's true. Yeah. You're right. I, I, so, you know, yeah. I mean, I guess, which one do you think is more likely? <laughs> I, you I, know uh, what I mean? Yeah. Is yeah, that yeah, like... Sure. <laughs> sure. Listen, I can't obviously rule out a false flag. I think it's possible. Um, I just, the thing is, to me, it does make the Kremlin look so weak that a drone attack hits the Kremlin. Um, that that's why if you evaluate the possibility that this is a Kremlin false flag, is it worth the cost of them make, looking so weak to their own population that they would allow a drone strike on their own, on their own you know, seat of power? I, to me... Um, th- okay, I guess I can so see your point, but, but a counter-argument, if it's creating a, a form of weakness to their own people, yeah. that would sort of more motivate those people? Because, I mean... I've been to Russia. I, I, I loved Eastern Europe. It was a really awesome place. It really was. And like, um, like they're, they're, um, like the nationalism is strong there, guys. It really is. They, uh, they are very, very prideful of their country in a way that I'm not sure Americans can really, uh, can really yeah. get with, you know what I mean? Yeah. But then, so that's what I'm saying. I don't think also, um, and I should have said this earlier. I don't think the Kremlin needs 
a false flag to drum up support because I think they already have it from what I can tell. Um, yeah, you know, I guess you do make a point there. You know, uh, so, but look, I certainly wouldn't rule it out. I think anything's possible. Um, I believe false flags have happened in Syria, for example. Uh, and uh, so to, if I'm going to be consistent, I have to leave open the possibility that there's this one here. But I just, I don't know. Um, you you really guess. think that this one is, is like, a, is is a, an attack? Because I was looking at it and it seems, honestly, to me, it seems like a really, really, really inept attack. Right. Um, like, it just, it didn't seem... I guess what I'm saying is it doesn't really seem like anybody gains anything from it at all. Well, to me, it made the Kremlin look weak. So that, and it maybe dealt a psychological blow to, to if you're the point of, you know, if you're the point of view of a, of a Ukrainian, you want to make it look like, like you want to show that, that you can penetrate deeper than, than thought. Like you can, you can get to the seat of power. But I agree with you. Look, I do think that there are plausible um, arguments either way. What I was making fun of before is just the rush to assume 100% with total certainty that this is a false flag. Like that's what. Oh yeah, that that that's of course it. completely and, dumb. Uh, but I, but I, but I yeah, but I do think it's plausible. I do, I do. Okay, I was just I was just curious because I have been kind of disconnected, but this story has kind of piqued my interest. Sure. Uh, yeah, sure. But yeah, thank you very very much. Thank and you. once again, respect your work a great deal. I appreciate that. Thank you. Have a good day. Okay, Jeff. Hi. Um, yes, I was just making a point about the uh, moon of Alabama. Um, mm-hmm. I noticed they have a, a recent blog which says Zelensky is finished because mm-hmm. they seem to think, or the guy behind moon of Alabama seems to think that Zen- Zelensky will now be in danger of his mm-hmm. life, you know, when he returns back to Ukraine. And I don't know if that's overblowing things a little bit. That's sort of taking... Uh, taking as read the idea that, you know, uh, Ukraine tried to assassinate Putin. And I know there was a deal made early on in the war. I think Naftali Bennett extracted an assurance from Putin that he wouldn't target Zelensky. Mm. So I was just interested to see that because I know the moon of Alabama, you know, they, you know, it's quite, quite a knowledgeable site. They seem to know a lot of what's going on. I was just wondering if you agreed with that. You know, I can't, you know, I don't know. Um, I, you know, it is true that uh, that Naftali Bennett said that Putin told him, I'm not going to kill Zelensky. And then Bennett went and told Zelensky this. He said, hey, Putin told me he's not going to kill you. And Zelensky said, are you sure? Are you sure? And Bennett was like, yep. And then according to Bennett, like an hour later, Zelensky recorded like a selfie video from his office and was like, I'm not afraid of you, Putin. You know, I'm not afraid. You know, so <laughs> he made that video after he knew that Putin wasn't going to kill him. But um, I don't know, you know, uh, you know, people are, are, are saying that uh, I've heard Scott Ritter say the same thing. I don't know. Um, um, I have no idea. Uh, and uh, what I've learned is that it's, it's just really hard to make confident predictions about the course of this war. Because, of course, everyone thought a lot, a lot of people thought Russia wouldn't invade. And then after Russia did invade, a lot of people thought it would be over within a week. And, of course, that, neither of those things materialized. So who knows? I don't know. Okay, I was just going to, uh, on a different point, I know it's a little off topic, but I just wanted to say I don't really understand why so many leftists condemn fellow leftists for appearing on programs like Tucker Carlson, because, yeah. you know, they're fine uh, for leftists to appear on, on, on you know, all the 
regular channels. And if you look at the mainstream news channels in the US and the UK, they're all complicit yeah. in drumming up support for the Iraq war, which was the crime of the 21st century, according, you know, as Noam Chomsky says. So what is it? Is it the fact that Tucker's just particularly nasty on the immigration issue or I mean, appearing on his show doesn't mean you, you know, endorse everything he says or everything sure, you believe. Of course. Well, it's both. It's both. He I mean, if you listen to him over the years and I suspect well, actually, you know, I have no idea if you listen to there's plenty of things he said over the course of his career that I think are pretty vile. So, so you can look at those things he said that, that they have and they show some some bias and some animus toward um, toward non-white people. Like, I, I do think you can say that about him. And he's got this idea of this, like, traditional American culture that he really wants to preserve, right? So I think that's true. But it's also true that he uh, has been really vocal and accurate on the Ukraine proxy war, on the Syria proxy war, on Russiagate, and on Julian Assange. And those are issues where a lot of leftists are have sold out or have, have just taken a, a stance that is actually its own version of American supremacy in much, the, in, in much the way that Tucker has his own version of American supremacy too. So I would never cancel someone for even, for go, even like Democracy Now! where I used to work, right? When it comes to Syria, they've pushed the most, you know, uh, ridiculous, factually incorrect and dangerous pro-war propaganda, like completely whitewashing the dirty war. But I would never condemn someone for going on, on DN because, you know, um, you just have to take the opportunities that you have to reach people. And also, you just, you know, people get things wrong sometimes. And you just can't blanketly just cancel someone for getting something wrong. But even though, you know, supporting the dirty war in Syria is a really harmful thing. It's meant that for people in Syria, their country was destroyed and now they can't rebuild because of U.S. sanctions. And... If you're pushing pro-dirty war propaganda, you're enabling that. So American supremacy and exceptionalism can be expressed in different ways, from like the vile rhetoric of Tucker Carlson, but also to the horrible coverage of places like Democracy Now! And the point is, I would never cancel someone for going on DN, and so I'm not going to suggest for going to call out things like the dirty war in Syria or, or the proxy war in Ukraine, especially when there's no other space to do that in all cable news. It's just a fact. It's it's too bad, but it's just a fact that he was better on on some of these issues than everybody else. And yeah, that's why. Yeah. And that's why. I mean, you even you know, as I was talking about before, you have Republicans who support the proxy war, who are celebrating his departure. So if you're a leftist who wants to join with pro-war Republicans in celebrating the ouster of like a of a place that featured anti-war voices, that's your right. I'm not going to do that personally. I, I don't want to. I don't want to like join hands with, with pro-war Republicans to celebrate the ouster of a voice who featured anti-war perspective. No, I agree totally. I mean, it's a bit like, you know, Bernie Sanders, when he was running for president, you know, he went on Fox News. And, you know, if that town hall event on Fox News was being chaired by Tucker Carlson, I don't think it would make any difference. Of course, he should no. go on it, you know, because yeah. it's going to reach a massive audience that way. Yep. 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 Exactly. Exactly. Um, well, Anyway, it's, it's just a weird time where what used to be right and left is, is just not, it's not quite the same anymore because it's just true that on some very key, key issues, voices on the right do better than some voices on the left. And I, I, as a lifelong leftist, I don't like admitting that, but it's, it's true. It just is. And hopefully that will change. Uh, but that's yeah, I agree. At. I agree. All the best. Likewise. Thanks, Jeff.
Cade. Hi, Aaron. Hi there. Um, I guess just on the Tucker Carlson thing real quick, I guess I, I think, you know, we're probably never going to know exactly why he was fired, but you know, it's probably could be a confluence of things. Um, like the original way I was sort of thinking about it was that maybe they wanted to fire him for like this anti-war stuff for a little while. And cause you know, there's the whole like thing about, um, Murdoch's girlfriend like Tucker or something, they broke up, you know, but they might've had reasons they wanted to fire Tucker for a while. And then, um, they couldn't kind of because of the Dominion lawsuit because he would have, you wouldn't want to fire someone right before they might testify against you. Right. Um, so I think it like they frame this like, oh my goodness, Tucker's the worst actor in this Dominion lawsuit. There's other one, a bunch of other Fox News hosts who said, you know, really similar things. Um, no, and, even there, see, the thing is, I remember, I don't, I, I don't recall him ever pushing the whole Trump line that the election was stolen. I think he actually challenged Sidney Powell, who was Trump's lawyer, uh, and yeah. asked her to produce evidence. So even, like, he did anything, challenge yeah. her more clearly than any of the other hosts. But he, I think he also had some other guests on who he didn't really push back on when they said sort of similar election denying things. But I don't think he was the worst mm-hmm. actor by okay. any means at Fox. And so I, I don't really buy that they've, fired him because of the Dominion thing, but I could see that the Dominion lawsuit might have, especially because he was really critical behind closed doors, they might not have wanted him to testify against them, you know, as a private person no longer employed by Fox News. Yeah. And so I could see, like, the timing working out where it looks like it happens right after Dominion, but really it's happening after Dominion because they were trying to, you know, keep him on board until they knew what was going to happen with the Dominion thing. Right. Um, but then... Um, to the, the sort of broader like question about like uh, Ukraine and this droning of the Kremlin, um, I I agree that we couldn't can't really rule out a false flag in the same way like I guess technically I couldn't we couldn't rule out the false flag with idea theory with Nord Stream or we couldn't rule out like the idea that the Kirsch originally the Kirsch bridge was just you know attacked by some group that had no affiliation with Zelensky, mm-hmm. um, you know, and they put out their stamps and who knows, like, I mean, I would assume that the stamp sort of is a hint that at least the people there think, you know, think Ukraine did it. Uh-huh. Um, but, but I guess really, I'm just not sure if all of that matters to me. The question is just really like, you know, I don't think we're like you said, I don't think we're going to get in a ground war. And I actually don't think like Biden or even Blinken or the other people around him really want a nuclear war. Mm-hmm. I just think they're willing to like gamble with it, with the risk of it, um, because they just want this war to keep going forever and kill as many Russians as it can. And if it kills a bunch of Ukrainians too, they don't care. And so I, I think the reason like Zelensky, they, we were talking about whether Zelensky might be a target. I think the reason Zelensky probably hasn't been a target so far is that Putin wants someone to negotiate with. And just like in Russia, if Putin died, like the hard right's going to take over, not, not some like, you know, great government. It's the, it's the like Azov guys and people surrounding Zelensky who would take over. It's not some like, that's a great point. That's a really good, good groups. Because Russia, because Russia knows is it's obvious that, I mean, Zelensky did a campaign on making peace, and um, it's we, we know that he's constrained by the far right forces in his own country. This was 
this is just made clear again and again and again. I wrote about this actually this week in an article I published on my Substack. It's called um, it's called uh, Kremlin Drone Attack Escalates Dangers of U.S. Investment in the Proxy War. And I quote from this guy Mark Giliotti, who is a Russia expert, like Western, you know, written a bunch of books about Russia. Um, not a fan of Putin at all. Kind of a hawk, I think, um, if I know his politics. But anyway, he reports that, you know, far-right forces inside Ukraine constrain Zelensky. This is what he writes. He says, uh, just quoting myself here, quoting him, uh, meanwhile, on the domestic front, hawks such as Budinov, the uh, Ukrainian military intelligence chief, quote, prevent any meaningful talk about negotiations, even though some in the government think now is the time to put out feelers, uh, unquote. Jaliadi is describing the predicament I've written about repeatedly, which is that Ukraine is completely boxed in by its own far right and by their allies in Washington, who have undermined peace at every point. So th- this is a, you know, this is a, a Western Russia expert writing in the London Times saying that domestic hawks in Ukraine, quote, prevent any meaningful talk about negotiations. So um, you're right. You know, Russia knows this. So they need to, so they wouldn't want to kill off someone like Zelensky, who maybe if he was unconstrained by his own domestic hawks, maybe he would negotiate. I don't know. I mean, he doesn't talk yeah, like it. Or, he doesn't talk like or it. Or maybe they maybe they're giving up on it now. But I think at least until now, that's why yeah. there's been really not many bombings of like the, you know, Russia could could have flattened, you know, all the government buildings in Kiev probably if they wanted to. Um, but I think they, they wanted a negotiation partner, which is what they wanted at the beginning. I mean, I'm not saying the invasion was justified, but they kind of invaded in a way which was supposed to just be kind of, I think, a pressure. Like, we're going to invade. We've sort of encircled Kiev. Yes. And, you know, now we're going to give you the out. And, and may, yes. maybe it almost worked. But and, the U.S. Know, but, intervened and Boris Johnson intervened. They did, and and like look at the timeline of, of how this war has gone. It's like when you really, when you really look at it, it's so cynical, okay? Because when does the major influx of, of U.S. weapons come? It doesn't come in the early part of the war, although you know, like there was a lot. But the main influx of weapons comes after Boris Johnson, with the backing of the West, sabotages diplomacy because you have so Russia invades late February, twenty twenty two. You, you, uh, and you have these initial talks between Russians and Ukrainians in Belarus on the border, right? And now we learn that that was like that Ukraine never had any intention of actually negotiating because Ukraine killed their own negotiator, who they accused of being a double agent, which is right. other Ukrainians had disputed, right? So, but then you have actual meaningful talks uh, brokered by uh, you know by Naftali Bennett, as he's talked about, um, and brokered by Turkey, and that leads to a tentative agreement in late March. Everybody confirms that now. Putin said that. Sources close to Zelensky said that. Uh, Fiona Hill has said that. So they had an agreement. Right. And, then we, uh, and, and, and then we know what happened. Boris Johnson came in early April 2022 and told Zelensky, no, like, if you negotiate with Putin, we, we, we will not have your back. And now is not the time to negotiate. So Zelensky had no choice but to keep fighting because if the U.S. and U.K. won't back him up in, in negotiations, then he has no leverage at all to actually implement them. And, uh, and he has no way, and he has no guarantee for, uh, Boris Johnson even said, we, we will not guarantee your security if you nego- if you reach a deal with Russia, which means that, you know, uh, Ukraine could be vulnerable again if Russia somehow decided to invade. So anyway, Zelensky's forced to keep fighting. And that's when, yeah. that, that's when the huge influx of NATO weaponry came. It comes after uh, 
that early, uh, like, or like that late March intervention by Boris Johnson. So it's so cynical. You destroy peace talks and then you reward, quote unquote, Ukraine with all this weapon, all this weaponry. And that's what keeps the war going. So it's so yeah. incredibly cynical because the war could have ended right, right there. The war and then you add there. to that that with all those weapons, I guess, is coming in this gas money that's, you know, directly going into the pocket of, you know, Zelensky and, sure. and the top leadership yeah. and stuff. Yeah. And so, you know, the second the war ends, that turns off and the economy collapses because we're propping up the economy and we're not going to be propping up the economy for peace. Um, so it's just, Absolutely. I mean, I don't, I don't see how Zelensky can really extract himself from it. I don't, I also, even if the, like, even if, you know, the Ukrainian counteroffensive or whatever goes nowhere and the Russians gain more ground, I don't really see Biden backing out of it either because the second he does, he admit, I mean, the second anyone on the Ukraine or UK, in the UK or the US says we should have a peace deal now that's worse terms than the one from April. I just, mm -hmm. I can't imagine how, how that's going, you know, how that's not going to lead to, especially in like Ukraine. I can't imagine like Zelensky does that and then wins an election after admitting that he, you know, got 200,000 Ukrainians killed to lose more ground than they would have if they'd negotiated a peace deal right away. Exactly. So it's just, it's, it's a mess. And I, you, you really start to see how wars can just go on forever because there's no sort of clean, good way out for these people who have already, you know, already, you know, dipped their toes into the water of the war too early. Like maybe if Zelensky right away at the start of the war, you know, when he was talking about, he was really mad that the, the U S and UK wouldn't, agree even before the war wouldn't agree to either let him in NATO or just, he said that, you know, they could just refuse it. And then, you know, then Russia wouldn't want to invade Ukraine. And we had to, we had to leave it dangling, but not, not actually do it. And so it just seems like they're, they're totally trapped um, from like a political sense. And I mean, obviously from a moral sense, you know, Zelensky should just say, you know, Screw with my career. I'm going to negotiate yeah. a deal, but yeah. and you know they're but, definitely and, trapped and, in a political sense. And 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 what you said about the you know gas money going to uh, Zelensky and his cronies—that's exactly right. That's their payoff for caving and for going along with it. Is they get to reap the spoils of corruption. It's just so. And then the rest of the country has to suffer. It's so incredibly cynical. And you know again. It's the kind of thing where these things happen, and you know we have some of the details, and Cy Hirsch has reported some of this, but the full story right. will, but the full story will be told long after the damage is done, and it's just it's it's just part of the tragedy. Uh, thank you, Kate, for the yeah. call. Okay, Jason. Hey, Aaron. Uh, how you doing? Hi there. I'm good. 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 Hey, I'm, I was curious on your thoughts on. Um, I've seen a lot of reports on the Wagner mercenaries uh leaving back moot i guess the big issue was over ammunition supplies uh i saw the video where you know he called out russian generals and everything um but then i saw you know they had invited the uh, chechnyans to kind of fill the void uh, i was curious what you make of all of that uh you know i know Prigozhin has been complaining you know about his counterparts in the russian military and calling them sellouts and traitors and I mean, uh, if he's being sincere, and this isn't just like a psyop, it's it's pretty mind blowing that someone that high up could have you know like air his contempt for 
his uh, for top Russian officials so openly. It's pretty extraordinary. Um, so I don't know, but I don't know. I, it's uh, he either he either he's being sincere, in which case that's just an extraordinary thing to have someone complain so openly like that, or this is some sort of diversion thing where they want to make it look as if there's like dissension within the ranks of, of Russia uh, to maybe catch people off guard. I don't know. I doubt that personally. I, I do think he's being sincere and it just sounds like he's been in the war for a long time and it's gotten to him. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but in terms of like the battlefield details around Bakhmut, I don't know. Uh, it's not something I follow too closely. So I, I don't have much to tell you there. Okay. I gotcha. Well, I appreciate your honesty on that. Um, it just seemed like with the, uh, ever uh, illuminating Ukrainian counteroffensive and with um, the Wagner group, which um, from at least what I've looked into is a lot of the footing in Bakhmut, um, you know, it seems like a, a bad chemistry, at least for the Russians. Um, and then you mentioned the psyops, and I'm glad you did. I kind of thought like, well, maybe this is like some Russian uh, psyopery where they're trying to like, maybe just like regroup Bakhmut for the next offensive and, uh, you know, you have to do that. You have to rotate troops on the front line. You can't just right. like send them out there for eighteen months when they're right. you know, constantly fighting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks for the call. Yep. All right. Have a good. Hello, Lee. You too. Hi, Lee. Okay. Uh, John. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, so I uh, um, kind of wanted to talk a little bit about the elections in Turkey uh, next week. Okay. I discussed that yet. Um, it looks like Erdogan's kind of on the ropes a bit. Uh, his opinion polls uh, are relatively low compared to the opposition candidate. I I don't know how to pronounce his name. Um, and there's a lot of issues in Turkey, like inflation. Um, and then just the fact that Erdogan's been in charge for two decades. Mm-hmm. Wondering how you think that's going to go. My, my, uh, my heart says Erdogan wins because he's a bit of a wily operator. Yeah. Um, and he might uh, have a few tricks up his sleeve. Um, also, I think the earthquake... While it, it didn't do uh, any positive things for his popularity, I'm under the impression that this might be wrong, that um, many of the people who are going to vote for the opposition candidate lived in these areas, and there might be depressed turnout because of that. Huh. That might be, I might be wrong about that, but my head says the opposition candidate just because um, inflation is, I believe, over 50%, and... Uh, the opposition leader wants to withdraw from northern Syria, um, hmm. which is quite popular. And he's also made statements about uh, joining the EU um, and also uh, maybe paradoxically uh, continuing integration with China. So I'm wondering what you think huh. of that. Well, well, John, I have, John, to, I have, to, I have to, to defer to you. I'm going to mute you, actually, because it, there's an echo. Um I have to, to defer to you on that because I, I haven't followed it at all, and I've I have no insight whatsoever into Turkey, um, to Turkey's internal politics. So I have nothing to tell you there. But I, I appreciate all your insights. That's all really interesting, and I, um, 
it'll be very interesting to see what happens there. And I, the fact that they are occupying Syria and allowing for an Al-Qaeda safe haven, you think that should be a, like, that would be a big deal <laughs> inside a country's politics. So um, I'm glad to hear that there's some opposition to, to Erdogan on that, which I didn't even know. So thank you for the call. Okay, we'll take one more call, and that is Mauricio. Hey, Aaron, how you doing? Hi there. Just gonna say, I really love the show, and uh, I love this aspect when to hear so many new ideas from people around the world and get their perspectives. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I'm still trying to wrap my head around like the implications of this Kremlin attack, and like for one, I'm just so grateful it wasn't successful, right? I mean, I don't think we haven't talked too much about you know what could have what could have been if this was a bigger bomb or if Putin was actually taken out. I I'm pretty sure we wouldn't be here right now. You know, I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when you think it that way, it's like I think this is a little more <laughs> severe. You know, I, I'm frankly like we have so much escalation that mm-hmm. I'm sometimes I can't even believe we're still here, and I just hope this luck doesn't run out. I mean, I know we're supposedly, I guess, what three minutes to midnight or something, but I feel like that should be assessed every, you know, every two weeks because it's just like the gravity of the situation. I think is. So I don't know if we're like in a boiling frog type of scenario or is it there's finally going to be a threshold where people are going to come to the senses and we can try to find a way to ratchet down this war and make sense because it's, it's, things are getting scary. I agree. I mean, Joe Biden himself said uh, last, I think it was last October, he said that the world's closer to Armageddon than at any point yeah. since the Cuban Missile Crisis. And everyone's just like, yeah, huh, you know, okay. Uh, the president of the U.S. saying that and yet doing nothing to take us off that course. It, it's, you know, to me, it's, uh, it speaks to how good our media is at propaganda and that it just it distracts people from that issue and it downplays it for the sake of continuing the proxy war. It's just we're such a captured, cognitively captured society. It's to the point where even the threat of, of a nuclear exchange is is dismissed. It's not really discussed. It's just kind of hanging over us. We all have to, we're all supposed to just live with it rather than do something. It has something no effect it. on people. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. And the scary thing for me is to see the pattern of U.S. response after all these incidents, right? The Nord yeah. Stream to um, the bridges, the ships, every escalated thing that we've had. The U.S. has always almost claimed a false flag, denied it, or minimized it. Same yeah. thing with Ukraine. And it's just now we're at the point is is if there was going to be an event, let's say in Zaporizhia where they're evacuating people, if that nuclear power plant was to somehow blow up, I mean, the Russians were obviously going to blame the U.S. The U.S. is obviously, from the moment, it's going to blame some type of false flag. Attack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of we course. Again. I mean, yeah. Well, again, and that was like a super dangerous situation that we are yes. in, and people just still like, yeah. I, I think we should probably little, have a little more focus yeah. on how. how and that we, was it. A- that, that was a situation yeah. where basically it was obvious that Ukraine was shelling the plant given that Russia was occupying it. But yet, if you read the New York exactly. Times, if you read the New York Times, they were saying, the, you know, it's Russia is the likely party shelling the plant. They, they, they would just print outright lies like that. And then recently there was exactly. actually an article in the Sunday Times of London saying that, oh, yeah, by the way, Ukraine's been launching this offensive against the plant for months and, it's, and they were shelling it basically. So it's just, uh, this, there, there's such a willingness to print lies, and it's, it's, it's extraordinary. And Marisa, uh, we have to leave it there. So thank you for the okay, call. Yeah. And thanks to yeah. everybody who uh, tuned in.
and I'll see you next week. Have a good weekend, everybody. Bye.